Romans chapter 14, and I'll pick it up starting in verse 13. Romans 14, starting in verse 13. The text says, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom the, for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Again, we're looking at this great statement by the Apostle Paul concerning the unity in the church and the potential problems that exist uh, between those who are both strong and weak believers. So we realize that in the church there's people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different levels on a spiritual uh, uh, spiritual level, uh, again, a variety of backgrounds. Some people have come from <clears throat> more legalistic backgrounds. Some people come from more fundamentalist backgrounds. Some from more liberal churches. Uh, some of us have just been saved. Some of us have been saved and walking with the Lord for a number of years. So the question is, how does a diverse collection of individuals get along? How do we deal with the differences? How do we deal with our differing opinions and not clash? How do we deal with those differing opinions and not bring disunity or discord into the body of Christ? That, that's the issue before us. Now, as we saw last time we were together, last week, we, we learned that there's a command and then there's a, a governing principle on unity. The command was to, for once and for all, stop judging each other. That's the command. And the governing principle was to make a determined decision to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or sister in Christ. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, there's the command, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. So it's uh, uh, not our position, it's not our job to pass judgment on each other uh, in the body of Christ. If somebody's in the body of Christ, it's because God has already accepted them. <clears throat> if somebody's in the body of Christ, God has accepted them, he supports them, he sustains them, he's the sovereign Lord in each of their lives, each of our lives, and we're all going to give an account before him for our lives how we lived. So he's the judge of all believers. So we just need to get on with things and not spend a lot of time looking at each other, at each other, evaluating each other, or judging each other. What we need to do is look at ourselves. We need to be evaluating or judging our own lives. We need to be looking at ourselves and looking at God in Christ and making sure that we're ready to stand and give an account for our life in our day of judgment, not unto salvation, but just in how we've lived our life. Because often when we judge other people, we judge them wrongly. Uh, we criticize them unfairly because we're not familiar with all the circumstances of a man's life and we don't know the motivations of a man's heart. Only God does. 
and therefore it's nothing more than sin on our part, then we start to rush to judgment and have a negative opinion of other brothers and sisters in Christ, failing to think the best of them. And that's what we really should be doing. We should all really be thinking the best of each other. Because often when we judge each other, our judgment's completely wrong. We don't have all the facts of the situation. And again, it's just not our position to enter into judgment upon a fellow believer. What we want to do, rather, is we want to live together in an atmosphere of grace. We want to live together in an atmosphere that practically and tangibly demonstrates brotherly love, giving preference to each other, and being determined in our hearts and minds to be sensitive to the weak uh, the weaknesses of others uh, around us at all costs. And we are to be attempting to build each other up, encourage each other in faith. Now, I think it might be helpful in the context as we're starting to work through this next portion of the text, and we're going to talk about eating or not eating, uh, perhaps even at some point talking about observing and not observing certain days. I think it's under, important to understand the context here that this is a transitional period. This is early on uh, here in the New Testament church. So there are many men and women from a variety of different backgrounds, all kinds of different backgrounds, coming into Christianity, again, both Jew and Gentile, with different issues, uh, again, in their backgrounds. And they're all coming together in this thing called the body of Christ, the church. And the challenge then, just like it is now, is to learn how to live together. Again, both weak and strong, with various convictions about things not specifically spelled out in the Scripture. And, And compromise was at times needed in order to promote unity in the early church to work through certain issues that may not be long-lasting, permanent, or binding issues, but sometimes compromise had to be made. For example, if you remember back in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, uh, the Jewish church there in uh, Jerusalem asked the Gentile church in Antioch not to eat meat offered to idols. And the request was made by James and the other leaders at the Gent- of, uh, to the Gentiles that they would not rejoice in their freedoms in Christ that would cause Jewish believers to stumble or violate their own conscience. But the Jewish council proposed, proposed that the Gentiles would abstain from eating meat that had been offered to pagan gods because it was not because it was expressly forbidden in the word of God, but because idolatry was so repulsive to Jewish converts. And the issue of eating meat offered to idols was really somewhat of a major stumbling block to the weaker Jewish brothers in the fellowship. So part was, Paul was a part of this, and he accepted this request, not because in and of itself it was wrong to eat meat, but, but the issue was causing such a problem amongst the immature Jewish believers, Paul didn't want to cause division in the church. He didn't want the church to divide over this issue. Again, he wanted to promote unity, because God has called us all together in the body of Christ. And, and uh, we talk about this a lot, but God has not called us to independence. He's called us to interdependence. Right? He call, he's called us to interdependence in, in the body of Christ. So we have to be very careful, very sensitive, I, I think, uh, uh, about division and out of love, being uh, making sure that we're not insensitive to other Christians, uh, not doing something that would uh, unintentionally uh, flaunt our freedoms that might offend a weaker uh, brother's conscience. So there's a tremendous amount to be said uh, about that issue of of conscience uh, and a tremendous wisdom that I think needs to be made with a, a variety of different issues uh, that, that uh, uh, could raise to the level of possibly causing separation. Uh, again, issues that we can agree to disagree on or issues perhaps that we can compromise or set aside our own personal convictions for the moment for the sake of the unity of the body. Because this issue of uh, eating meat or not eating meat was an issue of that day, but but that's no concern for us, right? And we've moved beyond that issue in the church. 
But whatever issue it is that arises in our day, we need to, again, think with it uh, a tremendous amount of wisdom. We need to evaluate it properly and place it in the right context just to try to understand exactly how really important it is and realize whatever the issue is and whatever side we take on that issue, uh, our actions in the body of Christ have an effect not just on ourselves, but on everyone around us. that makes sense? We all have certain freedoms in Christ, but what we do and what we don't do and how we address these issues really affects the losing the body of Christ. So we just need to be sensitive to that, right? So the question is, will we set aside our liberties for the sake of the weaker brother? Will we set aside our liberties for the sake of the weaker brother, or will we insist on having our own way and risk the unity of the body? Are our preferences worth fracturing the fellowship? Again, the New Testament places such a high value on the unity of the body of Christ. Now, let's start to work through the text here with those kind of introductory words. Well, we covered verse 13 in total last time, but let me just read it and then uh, read 14 and 15. We'll start to work our way through it. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put a stumbling, an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, it is to him it is unclean. Verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So again, I know, if we're 14, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord that nothing, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, it's really unclean. It really is a remarkable statement, especially when you consider the fact that it was written by a man who was one time in his life a legalistic Pharisee. And as a legalistic Pharisee, he would have had, uh, he would have been particularly careful about what he ate and what he did not eat. Because there's a number of foods in the Jewish system that are unclean in the Mosaic law, which no self-respecting uh, Jew would even consider partaking in. But now at this moment, Paul comes and says this, I know and am convinced that nothing in and of itself is unclean or nothing is unclean in and of itself. So how does he get there? How does he get to that point? Well, I think the, he answers that in the next phrase. He says, I know and am convinced that here it is in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in and of itself. So it's the Lord Jesus that has changed this man's opinion. It's the Lord Jesus that has changed this man's opinion. It's the Lord Jesus that has changed this man's life. He, he's no longer who he used to be. He's no longer Saul of Tarsus. He's no longer a Pharisee. But now in Christ, he's changed. He's the, he's the Apostle Paul. He's been changed by the person of the Holy Spirit because of his relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. He goes, I know and am convinced <clears throat> that nothing is unclean in and itself. It, it really is a statement that the gospel has made a positive effect in his life. The gospel has made a positive effect upon his life. The gospel has made him a completely changed person. It's changed his thinking. It's reversed his thinking. It's reversed his judgment on matters that he once thought were of vital importance. And again, this is something that only the Holy Spirit of God can do. Well, only God can transform and change a life. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, the ESV says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. So basically, Paul says, look, I'm absolutely convinced because of the gospel. Because the gospel has transformed and changed me, transformed and changed my life. I've actually come in contact with the risen Savior. I'm united with Christ. I'm in communion with Christ. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Now, I am of the opinion that this is more than just Paul's 
personal opinion on this issue or preference on this issue. I do really think there's a possibility uh, that this connotation, uh, there's a connotation of the, in this statement that he comes to this conclusion by way of divine revelation. I think Christ has spoken to him and helped him see that nothing is unclean in of itself. I really think that is what's behind the statement. Perhaps somewhat along the same lines that uh, in Acts chapter 10 where uh, um, the Lord spoke to Peter in that vision. Uh, Acts 10 verse 15. Again, a voice came from him a second time saying, what God has cleaned, uh, cleansed no longer consider unholy. And I would take the position that perhaps this is exactly what's happened to Paul since uh, Galatians chapter 1 says, uh, Paul that says that the entire gospel was given to him by who? Christ. Right? The entire gospel was given to him by Christ, not by men. It was given to him through direct revelation. So I don't think Paul's giving his opinion here. Rather, I think he's one who's controlled by the Holy Spirit, uh, controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's under con- the control of Christ, in Christ, again, led by Christ, led by the Spirit. And I think he's giving us an uh, understanding that, that Christ has given to him, that nothing in itself is unclean. God's the judge. God's the ruler of the universe. Uh, he has the perfect right to say what we can and what we cannot uh, do and what we can and cannot partake of because the earth belongs to him and the fullness thereof. So again, it's not the things that come into a man that defile a man. It's really what comes out of a man uh, that defiles him. He understands that. It says that in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. So again, Paul says, nothing in itself is unclean or nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him is, it is unclean. Now the question is uh, uh, that what is clean can become unclean. How does that happen? How does what is clean become unclean? And what we're talking about here is the issue of our what? Our conscience, that's right. It's the issue of our conscience. And, and we, we are really under no uh, New Covenant direct restrictions and New Covenant uh, on, on what we can eat or, or not eat, but we are to pay attention to our to our conscience. If, if it's wrong to us, whatever the issue is, then it's wrong. That nothing in itself is unclean, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So again, in essence, what Paul is bringing attention to He's saying it and then bringing attention to the fact that, that we should never violate our conscience. Right? The thing may not be outright sin, but if you feel uncomfortable with whatever that issue is, then you need to avoid it. We should never do anything that gives offense to our conscience. Or do something that would encourage someone else to violate their conscience. Because right or wrong, if you believe something is unclean, then it is what? It's unclean. And every time we violate our conscience, we are desensitizing our conscience. And it's our conscience is that thing that protects us from sin. <clears throat> it's our conscience that helps instruct us to do the things we know are right, and our conscience that helps protect us from doing the things we know that are wrong. And the whole emphasis here in the passage is on how uh, the words and, and the actions of strong in the faith affect the spiritual welfare of those who are weak. Now, the New Testament puts a high premium on, on the issue of the conscience, the importance of the conscience in, in the life of the believer. So how we interact with each other, how it affects our conscience, how it affects the other person's conscience is an issue. So again, the New Testament puts a very high premium on the issue of the conscience. Acts chapter 23, Paul talks about having a good conscience. Acts 24, he talks about having a blameless conscience before both God and man. Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about the fact that the Gentiles have a conscience that bears witness, either alternatively accusing or defending them. Because that's because the reality is that God's law has been written upon all men's heart. God has put his law on men's heart, uh, all men, men, men and women. 
Now, I don't think, when I make that statement, I don't think it's too far out to say that that obedience to the conscience goes, again, right along with what God has written on our hearts as to the law. Or saying it another way, if you violate your conscience, you're really being disobedient to the truth that God has placed in your heart as to what is right and wrong. And again, the conscience really is that God-given ability to determine right from wrong. It's innate. So we want to have a good conscience. We want to make sure that we have a conscience that's void of offense. And we need to understand that the conscience can be weakened. The conscience can be defiled. The conscience can be seared. It can be hardened if we violate it over and over again. So again, the conscience is a God-given ability to detect right from wrong. But the conscience, listen, the conscience is only as good as it is what? Biblically informed. Right? The conscience is only as good as it's biblically informed. Therefore, there may indeed be areas that we really need to grow in. Because the truth is, there may be areas that we need to grow in because we are the weaker brother and our conscience is being unjustly accusative because in Christ we have certain freedoms. But because our minds and our consciousness are biblically uninformed, we don't understand and we're easily offended. I think that's important enough to say it twice. Our our conscience is only as good. It's a God-given innate ability to take right from wrong. But it's only as good as it's biblically informed. So there may be areas in our own life that we just need to grow in. Because we're not the stronger the brother, we're actually the weaker brother. And our conscience is being overactively accusative. Because in Christ, we have certain freedoms. Other brothers have certain freedoms. But because our minds and our conscience are biblically uninformed, we don't understand that. We don't understand the freedoms we have in Christ, and we're easily offended by other people's actions or maybe even our own, uh, our own activities. So again, I say that it is true. And again, on the other hand, that we have to be careful of our own conscience being unbiblically informed. We have to obey our conscience to whatever level we understand truth at the moment. We should never disobey our conscience. We have to make sure that we're careful also not to mistreat our conscience, and but also be actively sensitive to our conscience. Again, always biblically informing our conscience. That was Paul's method of instruction. That's how Paul taught. Uh, take, your, take your Bible and just look over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 5. What was Paul's method of instruction? He's talking to Timothy, obviously, here. He's comparing himself to the false teachers. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, the goal of our instruction, here it is, is love from a pure heart and a what? A good conscience. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So that's the goal of teaching truth. We want to warn of error. We want to instruct men in the way of salvation found in Jesus Christ. And doing that produces love for God, a sincere faith and a, a, sincere faith and a cleansed conscience. And when a believer is properly instructed, he enjoys the affirmation and peace of a good conscience, a perfect, satisfied conscience, satisfied uh, in the person of God. Uh, he knows that he's following God. He knows that he's doing, uh, living his life according to the will of God. But again, on the other hand, when we violate our conscience, it introduces guilt. Again, guilt is God's design method, uh, the mind's security system, if you will to warn us against doing those things that could be dangerous or harmful or a threat to our soul, to our soul's well-being. 
Now, sadly, in the time in which we live, guilt is non-optional. <laughs> Meaning guilt is seen as something that's to be absolutely avoided in our culture at all costs. Guilt is not something that is accepted in the world in which we now live, uh, nor is it by most of the church. So if you're guilty, if you're feeling your, uh, the, the violation of your conscience, if you're feeling guilt, then there's always somebody ready in the culture to give you some kind of pill to help you forget your conscience or to dull your conscience. Or more than that, there's a lot of people who just line up and say, ignore your conscience. Just forget it. Move on. You shouldn't be guilty. There's no such thing as guilt. Now, obviously, that's not helpful in the least bit because all that's going to lead to is further destruction, a further hardening of, of your conscience. Paul went on to describe this, drop down to verse 18, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He says, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So when you properly care for your conscience, it keeps you from error, keeps you from running aground in the uh, metaphor that he's using here, running aground on the rocks, as it were, that will shipwreck your life. But false teachers, uh, those who have abused their own conscience, they suffer and have suffered devastating consequences in, in regard to their faith. Go uh, to uh, chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul's going to further describe this. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 2, by means of hypocrisy of liars, here it is, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So point number one, all false teaching originates not with the minds of men, but all false teaching originates with the mind of Satan and those demonic, uh, those in the demonic realm. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And all false teaching can uh, lead a person to such a devastating position that their conscience is seared. It's cauterized. It's no longer able to sense right from wrong. Uh, because the nerve endings, uh, so to speak, of the conscience have been destroyed. The ability to sense uh, right from wrong or error is no longer functioning. And what happens in that situation, then the person falls under the prey to demonic deception. They can't tell right or wrong anymore. They can't tell truth from error. Uh, again, people in this situation can no longer feel their conscience. And they can't do anything that's right. They do and they think the most terrible things. They, they deliberately defy. They deliberately disobey God. Uh, they recognize no moral standard whatsoever. That's our day. That's exactly the day in which we live. That's everywhere in our culture, everywhere around in the world in the day and the time in which we live. That picture defines our culture. That's exactly what Isaiah warned of back in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Those who fall into that category are under the judgment of God because they paid 
attention to seedful spirits and doctrines of demons, by which, uh, by means of which, or by means of the hypocrisy of liars, have seared in their own conscience with the branding iron. Uh, they, we, the, the world can't understand truth, and all it does is that which is against God. Titus chapter one verse fifteen. You don't have to turn there, but he says to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their consciences are defiled. So, so again, the, the mind that has been defiled is going to lead to actions that are defiled. Because the conscience that is no longer biblically informed and has been seared by uh, violating it over and over again can no longer work the way that God intended it. And the, the conscience can no longer inform uh, man of the error of his activities or the actions of his, his mind. And again, that defines our culture. So we want to listen to our conscience. We want to pay attention to our conscience. We want to protect our conscience. We want to biblically inform, uh, uh, accurately biblically uh, inform and fulfill and fill and train our, our conscience with God's word, with God's truth. So that we can live the way that he designs us to live. So that we can live uh, according to a, a manner that pleases him. Now go back to Romans uh, 14. <clears throat> I know I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks it's unclean, uh, to thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, we've spent a great deal of time under this heading of unity in the body of Christ. We've spent a great deal of time speaking about the principle of love and specifically brotherly love. We want to make sure that we don't do something to our brother that causes our brother's conscience to be violated and then hurt him and then then grieve him. And if we do that, we're no longer walking in love for this one for whom, again, the text says, for whom Christ died. So again, we just need to be once again reminded of that principle of love. That Christ has so loved, Christ has given himself up for us, his sacrificial life uh, for our life, uh, right? He sacrificed his life for our life, and, and then uh, the life even of the weaker brother in, in, in the body of Christ, as weak as that brother might be. So the principle here under this heading of love is if Christ could give himself up unhesitantly, sacrificing himself for us and for the weaker brother, because that's what Christ-like love does. In compassion and sympathy, uh, should we not also do the same for our weaker brother or sister in Christ? If Christ has come and humbled himself, should we not also humble ourselves, give up our rights, our privilege, our liberties, for the sake of the weaker brother in the body, in the fellowship, again, doing that out of love? Now, again, we've talked about a lot uh, about the, the weaker brother and the stronger brother, uh, again, uh, condescending out of love to his position, the uh, the, the weaker brother, we, we were stronger condescending to his position. And so if we talk about that, I think there's probably two questions that have to be asked. The, the first question would be, does that mean that we can never enter into a discussion with the weaker brother to try to encourage him in his position uh, to grow? And the answer to that question obviously is no. Uh, we should be free to enter into discussion concerning truth with our weaker brother in the faith in order to help them grow, to better inform their mind, to better inform their conscience, to better inform them with biblical truth. But we should never enter into a debate or an argument 
uh, with them. We, we should never into, into a, <clears throat> in a discussion with them for the sake of just trying to show them up or uh, trying to display ourselves and our knowledge as compared to their lack of knowledge or lack of information. That wouldn't be kind. That wouldn't be under the heading uh, of brotherly love. That would be unloving. And we should never get into a discussion with a weaker brother unless we make sure that we're not entering into it with uh, a poor heart. We've got to make sure our heart's right. We've got to make sure that we've controlled ourselves in our, in our thinking or our, uh, our temper. We don't, never want to go into it with an uncontrolled fashion. And if we're like that, instead of it being a discussion that's helpful, it just becomes a, a beat-up session, if you will, on the weaker brother. It becomes nothing more than arguments. And arguments, most of the arguments I've ever been in uh, with somebody else, you're in real trouble if you're arguing with yourself. But most of the arguments that I've been in with other people don't go well because everybody's willing to defend their own position, right? So we're trying to get to the issue of truth, right? So it would be improper to enter into an argument on some issue in the body of Christ without approaching the whole thing out of a tremendous amount of love. So if we can't control yourself, then probably it's not the best time to discuss it, no matter what the issue is, and no matter how right you might be on your position, no matter how wrong they might be on theirs. Because again, we're trying to help people. We're trying to treat them in brotherly love. In fact, Spurgeon made a comment to that very issue. Uh, he, to his students, he often warned his students about uh, trouble and troubled people caused by arguments in a church. And he said this. He said, when you go to churches, you often find that there are people who in the prayer meeting pray like angels. But often the moment they go into the... Uh, so in the prayer meeting, they pray like angels. But often the moment they go into the church meeting and discuss affairs of the church, the same people suddenly become devils, right? And, and that's kind of the way it is, right? Unless you get your way, right? So so whatever the issue is, whatever we end your discussion with somebody, it really should be with an idea of trying to gain a better understanding of the truth. Both of us collectively trying to understand uh, a better understanding of the truth, each helping us understand uh, uh, the word of truth. So it should be the best interest, uh, again, the weaker brother, the stronger brother, whatever the issue is, uh, attempting to realize, uh, again, the position of the weaker brother, but trying to encourage them towards the position of truth. Trying to understand the position that that person's coming from, because again, we all come from a variety of different backgrounds and a variety of different issues. And we should not expect the person to come too far too fast. Uh, rather, we should be encouraging them all along in their growth. I've told you this before. All I ever want to see anybody that I deal with on whatever the issue is, all I want to see is a want to. Just a want to go in the right direction, right? Just a want to to, to move forward. So we should always just be encouraging our, our brother and sister, always pointing them towards the truth, pointing them towards the word of God. Because we, what we want to do is we want to let the person of the Holy Spirit do the what? Convincing. We want to let the person of the Holy Spirit do the convicting, the convincing in someone else's life. Because that's not our role. It's the word of God that we need to point people to. Because it's the word of God that changes people's hearts and therefore changes their action. So we just need to keep within this whole discussion of dealing with brothers and sisters and entering into a discussion with them. We just need to keep the principle of great patience. And again, realize there's going to be difficulties along the way. And, and realizing that everybody has blind spots. We have blind spots. If I knew what my blind spots were, I'd address them. You see my blind spots without question uh, because you're all looking at me, right? If I knew what my blind spots were, that I'd address them. I can't, right? So we have to understand that we've all got blind spots. The person we're interacting with, we ourselves. And then we also have to realize under the heading of patience that sometimes there's certain things in our own life that it took quite a bit of time, if we're honest, it took quite a bit of time for the Holy Spirit to move and work on our own hearts, to change our opinion on something, to help us understand a certain issue. So we just want to be kind to, to people and patient to them. Always want to be encouraging them. Always want to be loving them. Uh, always want to showing our brother and sister uh, that we really care for them. 
that were really concerned for them uh, more than the issue, right? They were not denouncing them, not despising them, not looking down on them, whatever their position is, right? Because if you have a genuine heartfelt love for a person and they recognize that, if a person recognizes you genuinely care for them, then they're much more apt to do what? To listen, right? They're much more apt to listen, especially when you can take them to the Scripture and show them whatever the issue is from God's Word uh, on this issue. That's going to go a long way to help move our brother and sister, our weaker brother and sister along to grow in the in, in grace and grow in knowledge and the love of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, two issues. The second issue, question number one, can you ever enter into a discussion with a weaker brother to help move them along to a better position of truth? The answer is yes. Second question, because we're deferring so much to the weaker brother, does that pull us down to the level of the weaker brother? Because we're deferring so much to the weaker brother, does that pull us down to the level of the weaker brother? Or doesn't that make the weaker brother the tyrant over the stronger? Doesn't that make the weaker brother the one who controls the church? The weaker brother, the one who controls the teaching of the church. The one, the weaker brother, the one who controls the development of the church. And the answer to that is absolutely no. Without question, no. Historically, all you have to do is just go back and look at the history of the church. Right? Uh, when's the last time that the church, the modern church, entered into discussions on eating meat or not eating meat over those things offered to idols? The answer is a long time ago. <laughs> It's not an issue. It's not an issue. It hasn't been an issue for a long, 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 long time. Uh, about what day to observe. Now, I know some people get into that kind of thing. But, but for the most part, these issues that were once issues at the beginning of the church aren't issue today because God in his kindness has matured his church. So, again, we can look back historically and see the church and understand again the time Paul is writing. It's a transitional period. So, again, the church continued to grow. The church continued to grow in grace. The church continued to grow in its love for each other. The church continued to grow in its love for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It it didn't get taken away on side issues. It's moving forward. It has moved forward historically. It continues to move forward. So again, in in transitional times here, like this issue with meat and uh, offered to idols, etc., Paul's not laying down permanent legislation. What he's trying to help us understand is the weak and the strong in the body of Christ need to get together. There needs to be a unity. So again, uh, these issues, again, in the context of this eating of meat issue, is not a gospel issue. It's really one of those kind of issues that falls under the matter of a man's opinion or indifferent matters. And there's a lot of those, right? How in the body of Christ, how we see certain things or how somebody else sees certain things. And I think at times we who tend to be on the stronger side of of the spectrum tend to make an error of raising secondary issues to the level of gospel priority when it's really a preference. We make a a tremendous error, I think, when we major on the minors and forget the ultimate issue. Again, in the body of Christ, we're to proclaim the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ, and and we're to help our brothers and sisters grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of of our Savior. So the sanctification process is, is the major issue. Now, you can end up with a problem with a weaker brother if he refuses to be teachable, right? You sit down with a weaker brother, weaker sister, and you graciously and humbly point them to the Scripture, show them what the Word of God says on the truth, and you've been long-sufferingly patient with them. Yet that brother and sister still refuses to be taught because they're not interested in listening. Now, at that point, whatever that point is, at that point, they've crossed over the line, and they're no longer acting according to a good conscience. They're no longer acting according to the principle of love and graciousness in the body of Christ. 
and now they're guilty of sin uh, and the sin of uh, having an unteachable spirit. So for whatever reason, with that weaker brother, at this position, pride has taken over. Now the weak one wrongly thinks he is strong, and the weak one is demanding priority over the body and demanding that his position being seen as the preeminent uh, issue in the room. And honestly, over the almost 20 years that I've been here, I've seen people fall into this uh, into this error, and it's a terrible thing to watch. It's terrible for them uh, and, it's, and their families, but it's really terrible for the body of Christ because it causes unnecessary disunity. So again, we have to be gracious and kind to each other, but it kind of works both ways. The weak with the strong, the strong with the weak. Again, both of us uh, lovingly, graciously giving preference to other. Just an example. It used to be a time, and maybe it still is, it's not here, but there used to be wars in the church over um, what? Music. We're having contemporary or we're having traditional. And for some unknown reason to me, pastors today even divide their congregations over that issue. The traditional service is at 8. The uh, uh, contemporary service is at 10 or 11 or whatever. Why, why would we do that? Why would we divide over that kind of an issue? It makes zero sense to me. But people, people argue over that. What should be re- really happening is the traditional people should be giving preference to the contemporary people, and the contemporary people should be giving preference to the traditional people. Because I want what you, I want what you want. I want you to be best served in the body of Christ. Again, that's the principle of looking out for others, just like Christ looked out for us, right? Others oriented. That's what it means to be a Christian. So again, sometimes disunity comes into the body of Christ and it's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous havoc upon the fellowship, right? We, we want to, we want to point everybody to the truth. We want to come to an understanding of the truth. And we come face to face with the truth and we refuse to obey what Paul says or what the Bible says and whatever the issue is, then we're in tremendous error. We don't want to unnecessarily offend a weaker brother's conscience. And we, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to graciously, lovingly point out error and try to point people to truth. And when they're wrong, try to help encourage them to submit themselves to the clear teaching of the scripture. Again, we're, we're not the convicting, converting word. That's the person of the Holy Spirit. He does that. All right? So the conscience, the importance of not violating your conscience, the importance of, of brotherly love, the importance of unity in, in the body of Christ. And again, the conscience is only as good as it's what? Biblically informed. You have to have a biblically informed conscience to be able to live a proper life. Now, enough of that. Verse 15, as we continue. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So what does that mean? What does that phrase mean? Do not destroy uh, with your food uh, him for whom Christ died. Uh, the, the word destroy there is apolumai. And it means to destroy. It means to entirely abolish, put to an end, ruin, utterly devastate. Uh, the King James often translates the word perish, uh, the word as perish. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. There's that word but have everlasting life. So sometimes the word is used in the New Testament to indicate eternal damnation of, a, of the unbeliever. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy. There's that word, apolumai, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Luke uh, three verse, uh, 13, verse 3, I tell you, uh, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Same word. As 2 Corinthians 4, 3, for gospel it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
So again, the term is often used in the New Testament to, uh, to indicate eternal damnation to the unbeliever. Uh, the, the word doesn't have the connotation of extinction as annihilationists want to uh, put forward. But uh, again, in the context of eternal calamity, that's what it means. It goes on forever and ever, right? But the question, what does it mean here? What does the word destroy mean here in, in, in the context of uh, Romans 14, verse 15? Does it mean that your brother can be everlastingly, eternally damned because how you've interacted with him or treated him on a certain issue? Now, believe it or not, some commentators would take that position. I, I, I think that's absurd. Uh, so I'd say that that's absolutely not, not correct. It's utterly impossible for any one of us to be responsible for the eternal destruction of another person. It's absolutely impossible for any of us to be responsible for the eternal destruction of another person, and that's for a number of reasons. Number one, the soul of man is so valuable, it could never be in your hands or my hands. The soul is so valuable, it could never be in your hands or my hands. I mean, how terrible it would be to live under the kind of pressure thinking that you or I are responsible for the ultimate destiny of the ultimate eternal destiny of anybody, including us ourselves, right? Including our own self. How terrible it would be for, for God to entrust us such a great responsibility as we, it would be a direct opposition to the teaching of the Scripture and that our power would be greater than His power. Because the reality is man is in such a terrible condition as it was God who was the one who acted first. God is the one out of love who sent His Son into this world. Right? He sent His world into the world for the salvation of men. He's the one who sent His Son. He's the one who sent the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, to convert the lost to faith in Christ. So it would be ludicrous to think that we're stronger than he is, more powerful than he is, that if salvation, again, was based on us, uh, none of us would be ever saved. We'd all perish. But salvation is always based on uh, the activity of God himself. Right? We're sinners, just nothing but sinners, disobedient. We fall into sin often, prone to error, prone to wonder. Now, again, stop and think about it. If we or anybody else actually believe that salvation has something to do with us, I know men say that, but I don't really think they believe that. If men actually thought that one day they could be a child of God and the next day be saved and regenerate, but then do something or not do something, and the next day be not saved, not a child of God, a stumble, fall away from the faith, and become un- unregenerate, and then at some point realize what they've done and then go back and come back to life again or regeneration, perhaps only to fall again, that's a hopeless system, isn't it? Again, what, did you, what was your last thought when you drove your car off the cliff and before you just hit the ground? You know, I hope it was a good one because it was a bad one. You know, you might end up in hell. That kind of system is ridiculous, but there's a lot of people who, who live under that hopeless system. Some people actually believe that they're the determiner of uh, uh, eternal destinies. Some people actually believe that they themselves can come to life in Christ. They can determine to come to life in Christ. They can determine to fall away from him by what they do or what they don't do. Now, again, that's not only a sad understanding of truth, a misunderstanding of truth. Obviously, a misunderstanding of grace and mercy. It's a tremendous misunderstanding of regeneration. Because regeneration is never based on the activities or actions of men. Regeneration is always based on the action and activity of God. Because the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, all men are what? Dead in trespasses and sins. Want to take a shot at what dead means. Right? I mean, dead is dead. Dead things can do nothing. All dead things can do is move from one degrading level of corruption to another degrading level of corruption and and decay. But God is alive. He's the one who makes man alive. And, and, And God, the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, our God, he's rich in mercy. And because of his incredible love, he's made us alive together with what? With Christ. And by grace, he saves us. 
So salvation is never dependent on the hands of men. Salvation always rests in the hands of God alone. And God brings salvation into this world by his son. And it's always by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. So we who are united in Christ, saved by God's grace and mercy, by the regenerating power of God, that means there's nothing that we can ever do or anybody else to us can ever do to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think I read that in Romans 8. I did. It's right here in my notes. Romans 8, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means nothing can ever separate us from the regenerating love of the person of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's impossible for man's eternal destinies, the destiny of a man's eternal soul, to depend upon any other man. We don't have the power to save. And because we don't have the power to save, we don't have the power to make perish or cause to perish. Only God brings life to the dead. And only God is the one who's able to sustain his own uh, 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 sustain the life of his own, and he does that. He loses none of them, right? We went through that in the, in the book of John. Christ loses none of them. So it's impossible to come to the conclusion that this word destroy here back in uh, Romans uh, 14, verse 15, could mean anything along the lines of causing someone's eternal damnation. I said, again, there's people who teach that. So you come to that phrase, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. How do you deal with that? Well, again, the word destroy means ruin, means loss. And, and again, an understanding ultimately that it cannot mean eternal loss or eternal damnation for the believer. But in the context, I think you come to the conclusion that the phrase to destroy him for whom Christ died, it means to, that, that one person can really cause a devastating harm on another person's spiritual uh, condition in the sense of, of just their life. Uh, you, you can do devastating harm to somebody's spiritual growth. Uh, you can injure them on, on a spiritual level if you want. You can cause them real trouble uh, and render them, uh, for a moment at least, unuseful for the intended purpose that God has called them for. And again, that phrase at the end, for whom Christ died, uh, again, he's talking about believers. Believers here. So again, once a person comes to saving faith in Christ, there's nothing or no one who ever can separate us from God and his love. But you have to be very careful that as a stronger believer, you don't violate that person's conscience to such a level that you destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So again, it means that the, the stronger believer has a greater responsibility here in this issue to understand that he can seriously derail a weaker brother's growth if he's not careful. We want to be about building each other up in Christ. And if we want to be about building each other up in Christ, we have to be intentional to refuse to judge each other. We have to be intentional not to ever put any kind of a stumbling block or an offense in our brother's way. And we have to be careful, uh, intentionally so, to make sure that we don't do anything to violate a brother's conscience or cause him to violate his own conscience. And we have to be intentional about walking together in brotherly love, making sure we don't devastate or uh, devastate or destroy our brother in Christ and, and seriously derail his spiritual growth and his spiritual usefulness. Verse 16, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
for he who is for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. So again, we have to be careful. We have to make sure that we are guarding our witness really before an unbelieving world is what he's saying. We have to make sure that we don't forfeit our witness. Because it's possible for us as believers to abuse our liberties in Christ, to create conflicts in the church. And by creating conflicts in the church, it gives the unbelieving world the opportunity to criticize or condemn us, who claim to be walking together in brotherly what? Love, right? That's what disunity always does. It always gives the outside world an opportunity to criticize Christ and the body of Christ. So, so the liberties that we have in Christ are indeed a good thing. But if we don't have a tremendous amount of love, tremendous amount of compassion, tremendous amount of wisdom, we can abuse our Christian liberty for our own selfish reasons and care, carelessly allow a good thing to be spoken of as evil by the unbelieving world. Again, if we show careless concern for our weaker brother or our sister in Christ. For an example, turn over to 1 Corinthians First Corinthians um, chapter uh, 10. Verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edifying. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the, market, in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now again, I mentioned that eating meat is a very serious issue here in the early church, especially that which had been offered to idols. So here's a situation uh, coming out of a pagan background, there may be a time when the <clears throat> believer is invited to dinner at an unbelieving Gentile friend's home. And in that case, Paul's saying, you're free to eat anything, as long as it doesn't violate your own conscience. But let's say you're invited to dinner, but not just by yourselves. You're invited to dinner, and a weaker brother goes along with you. And the host happens to mention at dinner that he picked up this tremendous filet at the temple deli right next to the pagan shrine of some false deity. Now the weaker brother that's come to dinner with you, immediately he's going to have some difficulties with what he's about to eat. So what do you do? What do you do as the stronger believer? Verse 28. But if anyone should say to you, this meat is, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. Here's the reason. For the sake of the one whom informs you, and for conscience' sake, I do. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. So you're having dinner again with this other Gentile's house, a meat from the temple deli. Your weaker brother, he's concerned about that meat. He's concerned about that meat being offered to idol. So out of love for him, out of love for the weaker brother, you shouldn't eat it. And here's the principle: you, you should realize that. To offend the unbeliever is better than offending the weaker brother. To offend the weaker unbelieving brother, unbeliever, to offend the weaker unbeliever, 
to offend the unbeliever is better than offending your weaker brother in, in Christ. That's the point. Now, you may have liberty to eat the meat in Christ. Your conscience isn't violated whatsoever. But that opportunity there, that conflict may be an opportunity for you to serve your weaker brother in Christ because you're going to choose to forfeit your freedom in Christ in that situation. And also, it may become an opportunity of testimony to the unbelieving Gentile. It's better to show your love for your brother in Christ for him than to condemn him and go, man, pff, what are you doing? You know, we can do everything we want here, right? It's better for you to, 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 to love him and not condemn him in the, in the presence of the unbeliever. I, I think most of the time, most of us would make the mistake of thinking we need to be more concerned about the unbeliever at the moment. I think that's incorrect. We shouldn't be concerned about the unbeliever. We should be concerned about our brother in Christ. We should always be concerned about our brother or our sister in Christ first. We should always be concerned about not violating their conscience. Because that demonstration of our love for our brother and sister in Christ, listen, might indeed be the very tool that God uses to draw the attention of the unbeliever. Because what did Christ say the unbelieving world how, how did Christ say the unbelieving world would recognize us and know that we belong to him if we, what, have love for one another, if we love our brother? So out of love for the brother, the stronger Christian is called to set aside his liberty for the sake of the weaker brother, always being concerned about him. Verse 29, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks. Well, I guess we shouldn't be judged by another man's conscience. And again, you don't have to apologize or renounce your freedom in Christ. But on the other hand, we also have to be careful that our freedoms not slandered, not be slandered by expressing them in a fashion that causes harm again to the weaker brother. The weaker brother is always the priority. Or we get in a situation where we give the unbelieving world an opportunity to speak evil of the person of Christ. So again, it's much more important that we show love for our weaker brother in Christ than it is we express our freedoms. Because the purpose that we have liberties in Christ is found in verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church uh, or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. So the principle, again, is for everything in life we do for God's glory. We properly exercise our Christian liberty and do what is good so it may not be spoken of as evil with the intent of always seeing God honored, God glorified first, and then with our eyes on evangelical opportunities, uh, uh, evangelistic opportunities, but we seek to serve all men that they may be saved with the priority again of dealing with our uh, weaker brother in Christ, him being preeminent. So we want to make sure that we don't offend people in the, in the name of Christian liberty unnecessarily. We want to make sure we don't cause them to stumble. We want to make sure we never give an opportunity for disunity so the unbelieving world uh, can repudiate the gospel or repudiate the person of Jesus Christ. We're all aware of not the context of eating meat delivered to idols, but we're all aware of situations uh, that, that you know people who claim they claim Christ, but they live in such a fashion that they bring a reproach upon the name of Christ. There's nothing God-honoring, Christ-honoring in their lives. 
And by their very words and by their actions, although they claim to be followers of Christ, they're actually leading people away from the gospel, causing the gospel and causing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to be looked down upon. So again, the principle in our own life is do everything we can for the glory of God. We purposely live for the sake of our loving our brother and sister in Christ. And ultimately, our aim in the body of Christ is to do everything we do uh, for the good of others. So again, we understand that our liberty as Christians is not liberty really directed towards us, but our liberty as Christians is that which expresses itself in love towards others for the glory of God, for the glory of Christ, for the, for the glory of what's best for our brothers and sisters. Right? Does that make sense at all? Right? So we're living for others always, always with an eye, an eye to being kind to our weaker brother and sister in Christ. Well, that's enough. Lord willing, next time we'll get to the next verse. It says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. All right? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time together in your word. Thankful for this kind of quick look at these couple of verses here. And the principle of uh, unity in the body of Christ, how important that is to you, that we not do anything that causes a stumbling block to violate our conscience, the conscience of a, a weaker brother and sister in Christ, and we not do anything to give offense unnecessarily, and uh, that we are always mindful of how we live so that um, you might be honored always uh, and, and amongst all people. We thank you for our time uh, this evening. Thank you for our time this morning in your word. We praise you, and we are so thankful for your kindness uh, to us. May we honor you in all that we do, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Remember the all-church snack after the evening. It's over. <laughs>